Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 602nd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, welcome, everybody. I'm excited. This is our second monthly garden chat with a, an amazing expert. Tonight, we have Jessica Walliser. Jessica co-hosted The Organic Gardeners, an award-winning program on KDKA Radio in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for 15 years. That's absolutely amazing. She is a former contributing editor for Organic Gardening Magazine, as well as being a co-founder of the popular gardening website, SavvyGardening.com. Write that down. You want to go check that out. SavvyGardening.com. I actually just got today their month. Is it a monthly newsletter? Uh, Twice monthly. Twice month. I got their newsletter today and they were talking about raised beds. Great information there. Jessica is also the author of seven, not six, but seven gardening books, including the Amazon bestseller, Good Bug, Bad Bug, Who's Who and What They Do, and her newest book, Plant Partners, Science-Based Companion Planting Strategies for the Vegetable Garden. She's also been on our podcast multiple times, most recently, episode 588, talking about her book, Science uh, Plant Partners, Science-Based Companion Planting Strategies. So look for that. That was episode 588. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me, Greg. It's always fun to join you. Absolutely. So just tell me a little bit about your Savvy Gardening website. Let's go there first. Sure. We'll start there. So Savvy Gardening is a website that I run with two partners, and my two partners are Tara Nolan. She's from Toronto, Canada, Mm -hmm. and Nikki Jabor, who's way up north in Nova Scotia, Halifax, Nova Scotia. And then I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, so we've got three different gardening and growing zones represented here and two different countries, which is pretty cool. And we sort of write about everything connected to gardening from growing edible plants and herbs and fruits and, you know, vegetables, obviously, to ornamental plants, uh, shrubs and trees 
to insects in the garden and how to, to manage them and how to encourage the good ones. And we have DIY projects and gardening techniques and composting and soil and all, all types of things. So we started the website in uh, 2014 mm -hmm. and we just, you know, started it as a fun little side project to do to work on together. And then 2016, we really started to sort of see the potential, the ability for us to really reach a whole lot of gardeners through that platform and really provide some good quality information. So we nice. took it legit, so to speak, in yeah. 2016, and we've been riding it ever since. We get about a million and a half visitors a month, which is what? pretty cool. Yep. Yep. From all over the wow. world. In fact, it was really cool. Last, um, you know, if you go into Google Analytics for your website, you can actually see the location where people log into your website from. Right. And we had every single country except Cuba and in a country that I can't remember in uh, Western Africa, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So those wow. are the only two countries in the whole world where we didn't have any users from in that month. So oh, wow. it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And we love it. Of course, it's, it's become quite a passion for us. Two of us are horticulturists. The other is a professional editor. So we have a whole lot of fun together there. Wow. Congratulations. That's amazing. Thanks. Now, yeah, I, thank you. I did recently have Nikki on the podcast and I learned something very interesting. There is a time zone east of Eastern Standard Time. There is. I yep. didn't know that. There is Atlantic time zone. Yep. And yeah. that's where she is. That's where Nova Scotia is. Yes. Yeah, so she's one hour ahead of us here on the East Coast. So whenever we have our little Skype working calls for Savvy Gardening, we always have Jessica and Terry, Tara time because we're both in Eastern. And then we always have Nikki time because she's an hour ahead of us. <laughs> wow. So, there yeah. you go. Yep, well, yep. Th that just blew me away. It was just so different because we're on Pacific time. So that makes her four hours different, not three. So yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Yep, yep. <laughs> so we're going to talk about, thank you for that, by the way, we're going to talk about partnering with nature tonight. And, you know, I study permaculture and permaculture, th that's really a big part of what permaculture is about is how do we work in conjunction with nature rather than against nature. So I'll bring that perspective, but I really want you to bring your perspective. And uh, let's start with why is it important to partner with nature? I think for the most part, it makes our lives easier as gardeners. Right. You know, we're not we're not constantly having to fight things and feeling like we're in this battle mentality. Instead, it's really a much more collaborative mentality in the garden, which oh, in the long run obviously makes maintaining the garden a whole lot easier. Mm -hmm. So rather than everything being uh, contrary, instead we're sort of going with the flow. Uh, that's important you know, to make our lives simpler, but it's also really important simply because it's, it's our responsibility, right? We are more connected to the earth than probably anybody except a, a farmer, right? Right, right? So we have this very intimate and intricate connection with the earth that, you know, people who don't spend much time outside don't have. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have a great responsibility to be a good stewards of the land and to be responsible gardeners who are thoughtful in the care that we offer to our plants because we also know how much that care can affect all of the other organisms living in our landscape, whether it's, you know, from the littlest soil microbes up to, you know, the mammals that live in, in our landscape as well, and then certainly the humans also. So I think that it's essential, really, that we work with nature and that we understand the impact that we can possibly have, both mm -hmm. negative impact and positive impact on the natural processes that happen out in our gardens. It's just smart. It's a responsible thing to do. Well, you know, one of the things that I do here at the Urban Farm is I let things go to seed. 
and I just let them receive themselves. And so I have a forest garden in my front yard, and at any given moment, there's 10 or 15 things growing there that I didn't plant this year. They just plant themselves year over year. So that's one way to partner with nature. What's What are some of the other ways that we can partner with nature? Yeah, and that can be a responsible way to partner with nature. It can also be an irresponsible way to partner with nature. Ooh, depending on Well, depending on what's receding. So if you have something there that's a non-native, that doesn't belong in that environment, that mm-hmm. really is an exotic plant that can really displace our native species, depending on where you live, that can be a downside to it. So it's knowing what plants you're growing, which ones you're allowing to grow from seed. And it's fine if you're talking about, you know, an, an oak or, you know, a, a, a native perennial, like a coneflower or something like that, that reseeding that's native to your gardening zone. That's fantastic. And that is a great way to be a good steward uh, in the garden. But if it's something that's exotic, maybe not. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, so ex- lots of other ways. T- t- true. Um, and I'm sorry, I, didn't, I was going circling back to your original. No, question. that's OK. <laughs> but exotic and invasive is is even more problematic. Definitely yeah. more problematic. Be careful. Yeah. yeah. Be careful planting out invasive species. So. Yep. And that might not even be spreading from seed. That could also be spreading by rhizome or by, you know, really aggressive root system. Or yeah. it could layer just sort of where the branch touches the soil. It forms you know, new root structure, and they can spread that way as well, depending on the plant. So know your plants, get to know them, yeah. get to know where they're from. Yeah. So you asked about what some other ways are that uh, that we can really partner with nature. I would yeah. say probably one that most of your listeners are familiar with, that's sort of a no-brainer for many gardeners, is composting, where you're not sending things to the landfill. Instead, you are repurposing them. You're, yeah. you're keeping that closed loop intact and in place in your garden, where everything, all of the waste that's produced from your landscape is turned into treasure, so to speak, right? (laughs) Composted, breaking down, and then you're returning it back to the garden to feed your plants. You can compost in a bin, a barrel, whatever. You can actually just compost in place by letting the leaves fall off the tree, leaving your perennial stems in the bed, Mm -hmm. you know, not pulling out your annuals and just leaving them sort of decomposing in place on the soil surface, which is the way mother nature intended it to be. So there's nothing wrong with doing that. If you have a big perennial bed and you don't like the way those, you know, sticks look standing year after year, you could mow them down and just leave the mowing mm. drop to the ground right. and they'll break down really fast and go on to feed those plants. So that's sort of composting without having a composting bin. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's a really good way to partner with nature is just by letting the stuff be like it is in the forest. Nobody goes and rakes a forest. Right, right, right. And a forest is that regeneration. I mean, it's a regenerative cycle. The plants feed themselves. They take from the soil what they need, but eventually they'll return it in the the form of their dropped leaves or animals will eat their leaves, leave their waste behind. And so you have that cycle. And so we gardeners, instead, what we do is we rake up all the leaves and we cut everything down and we feel like we have to put the garden to bed tidy at the end of every season when really that's not how nature intended it to be. And that's how we shouldn't garden either. We need to be, I think, a little more messy. And I always say we need to stop treating our gardens like our living rooms. Oh, right. Say a little more about that. You know, I did an interesting post on Savvy Gardening a number of years ago where I talked about how to do the right kind of fall cleanup that wasn't destructive, uh, in particular to pollinators 
that are overwintering, beneficial insects like ladybugs and lacewings, you know, they need a place to mm -hmm. spend the winter in our right. garden. And when we cut everything down, rake everything up, we're taking away overwintering sites. So, you know, one of the opening lines that I said in there is, you know, we need to stop treating our gardens like our living rooms where we're vacuuming up every last fallen leaf and everything has to be clean and pristine because that's not how nature works. We need to leave dead plant stems for our native pollinators to take shelter in and lay eggs in during the growing season. We need to leave, you know, leaf litter lie on the ground because that's where so many of our butterflies will overwinter actually as adults or caterpillars or pupa. Right. So we should be leaving all of that alone in our landscapes as much as possible. That doesn't necessarily mean you need to let big wads of leaves on your lawn because we know that's not good for the lawn. But in all of your perennial beds, certainly in any area you have that's wooded on your property, leave those leaves lie. Let them break down in place. Let the pollinators have a place to, you know, stay for the winter and, and to lay their eggs. It's just yeah. it's better, more responsible gardening. Yeah. One of the things that I do is in the leaves on the lawn, they go into the mower. They get shredded up. Mm -hmm. And then all of that goes into the chicken coop. And the chickens do what the chickens do. And then all of that goes in the combos bin. Right. There you go. Right. So, again, you're getting that, that closed loop and that cycle of using everything that comes out of your garden and, and providing it with another purpose. Yeah. Now, you talk a lot about bugs in a lot of what you do. You've written a couple of books on bugs, good bug, bad bug. And, you know, I get probably once a month I'll get an email from somebody and they'll show me a picture of a bug. And it's like, oh, my God, how do I kill it? Their first first thought is, how do I kill it? And I get the same question about mushrooms. You know, how do I kill it? And these are beneficials in a lot of cases. And so yeah. speak to that, would you? Yeah, well, I think that that is important to really tell people how very few insect species are actually pests. So there's about a million or so identified insect species on this planet. Wow, didn't know that. That's how, that's how many we've identified. Mm -hmm. but scientists think there's actually between 2 and 20 million. So oh at, the very, at the very best end of that, we've only identified half. <laughs> if there are 20 million, then wow. obviously there are species going extinct far faster than we can identify them and name them by science, yeah. right? So, so of the 1 million that we know about, that we have identified, Less than 1% of those are classified as known human or agricultural pests. Wow. So less than 1% of that 1 million are actually proven to be pests. So when you come across an insect in your garden or in your yard or even in your home, the chances that it's going to be harmful to you or your plants or your pet or your kids are actually really, really small there's a far better chance that that insect is providing a really valuable ecosystem service that it is either, you know, benign or beneficial in some way. Maybe it's a pollinator, maybe it's a decomposer, maybe it's food for someone higher up on the food chain, you know, mm -hmm. it's got a role to play. So to automatically assume that it's bad is like saying that every person that you see on the street is a wicked and awful person. And that's, there, of course, are their share of wicked and awful people out there, but the vast majority are good. And so the yeah. same thing can be said of the insects in our garden. So proper identification is absolutely key. Before you take action against anything you find in your garden, you know, from the insect world, it is so, so important that you properly identify it. Well, and that goes, that's just not for bugs. I had a, I had a guy recently emailing me, something was eating his broccoli. 
And he kept showing me pictures. He's like, all right. And he, his question was, well, how do I kill it? Well, first of all, we have to figure out what it is. And it got to the point where he put in a small game camera. And it was rats. Mm. It was pack rats that were jumping in. So you have to be able to identify what you're dealing with before you take action, right? You do, yeah. And, you know, that's, that's the thing. A lot of times if we're not seeing the creature that is, quote unquote, harming our plants, we're mm -hmm. making assumptions about it without really doing right. the detective work that's required first. So one of the most clever tricks that I that I learned a long time ago from, oh my gosh, I, I, I think it was maybe my, my radio partner, my original radio partner years and years ago, I think was the one that told me this. I said, well, you know, how do you know if it's, if it's a groundhog, if it's a gopher, if it's a chipmunk, if it's a rat, if it's a mouse, if it's a vole or a mole or a what, squirrel, how do you know what it is that's eating your plants? And he had this really good trick. He said, well, you go out into your garden and in the evening, because usually these creatures a lot of times will feed at night yep. and you put baking flour all around the plants that are getting attacked on the soil. Of course. A thick layer of baking flour. And then in the morning you go out and you see whose footprints are in the flour. Right. And That's like, brilliant. Isn't it? It's pure genius. I was like, oh my. Well, okay. So you do have to do a little Googling if you come right. up with a track, yep. you know, a track that you're like, is that a possum or a raccoon or a, what is that? Right. So you, you still have to do a little sleuthing, but at least it will be the, you know, it'll tell you, is it a deer or is it a groundhog or is it a squirrel, right? So you know, their footprints all look really different. Um, but I thought that was really quite a genius way to discover who's <laughs> Oh my gosh. Pet. I am so yeah. excited about that. That is a perfect solution. Can I use it? Sure. All right. Yeah, absolutely. Let me know how it works out. And also too, sort of like where the damage is occurring. Right. So mm -hmm. like we know deer will eat from the top down or the sides in. Right. Whereas a lot of times bunnies will eat from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, your lilies are eaten off and they're eating, you know, the bottom leaves are gone, but the top leaves are intact. It's probably a bunny. If it's the whole darn thing missing, it might be a groundhog. So, yeah. you know, which I don't know if you guys have groundhogs out there in Arizona. No, do no we don't. We have rats and moles. Hmm. The, those well, are the moles, two. moles would not be eating plants ever. Moles are insectivores. Ah. Moles will eat our insects. So they will eat grubs and earthworms. Oh, I guess brown it's beetles. gophers that we have here. Could be gophers and, or it could be voles with a V. And yeah. voles with a V look like little mice, but with a stubby tail. And they live in big colonies. And they are the ones that will eat your bulbs. They eat, eat your rhizomes. Ah. They'll eat your tubers. Yeah. Those guys are really All right, so. In the realm of partnering with nature, what do we do about moles and voles and gophers and? Yeah, well, so I guess it depends on what they're attacking, and also let's say how passionate you are about <laughs> what they're damaging. So, like for me, where we see most mole with an M damage here is in the lawn, where they're tunneling mm. underneath the turf to get to the grubs and the earthworms, and they cause sort of like raised bumps in the lawn and ridges and like holes and little mounds of soil behind, you know, that doesn't bother me. Actually, I don't mind them at all in that instance. And so I don't do anything about them, you yeah. know, because it's just my lawn. I don't really care that much about my lawn. I'll just go out and step down the paths and kick, kick the little mounds aside. But if it's voles and they're in my garden and they're eating my potatoes out from underneath my plants or they're damaging my radish, which they do quite a bit here, 
then in the case of voles, I actually will set little mouse traps in the garden baited mm -hmm. with peanut butter. And I put them inside of tin cans so that oh. larger animals can't get to them. Oh, that's um, brilliant. Yeah. So wow. put them in a tin can or better still in like a piece of wide PVC pipe mm -hmm. or that black drain pipe. Oh, and yes. you put that black drain pipe along the run of the voles because they make like little beaten paths on the surface of the ground. And right. you put the trap in there, then like a cat or, you know, your dog or your kid or something is not going to get that. But the voles love to go in those little tunnels like that. Right. And then they'll get caught in the trap. Oh, yeah. So it's, you know, people, you know, if you're a super humane gardener, you might have a problem with that. So maybe you would want to use one of the, the deterrents that's based on castor oil. Mm -hmm. There's granular and liquid vole repellents and mole repellents that are based on castor oil. They work pretty well to deter them. So, you know, if you're not into the whole idea of setting a mousetrap for them, I'd go for that yeah. method instead. Perfect. Yeah. And, and you mentioned something that is curious to me, decomposers. Yeah. And so in the desert here, we grow our brassicas, which is cabbage, cauliflower, broccolis. We grow them in the wintertime. Okay. And usually about April, May timeframe, I start getting questions from customers that uh, from our listeners that say, hey, aphids are all over my broccoli. What's the deal? And mm -hmm. I tell them for here in the low desert, you should have already harvested that broccoli because now the broccoli has gone to seed and the aphids show up as decomposers, right? Technically, no. I mean, they're ah. herbivores. They're herbivores. Oh. So they're feeding on a plant in a, in a live state, right? Uh -huh. They're sucking the sap out of the plant. Oh, so, very good. Okay. So that plant is still in a living state. You won't find an aphid on a dead, on already dead plant. You will only find ah. it on a live plant. See, I'm learning right. something new. So the, a decomposer would be an insect that feeds on dead and decaying plant matter. So mm -hmm. that would be you know, or prefers to feed on dead right. and decaying plant matter. So a lot of the beetles will do that, especially beetle larvae. You know, they live on the ground and they, they eat that decomposing plant matter. Mm -hmm. Technically, sow bugs and pill bugs, which people also call like the roly polies mm -hmm. and stuff, those are technically decomposers. Occasionally they eat live plant material, but most often they feed on dead and decaying plant ah. matter. So those would be our decomposers. So those decomposers are, well, in this, in, in my, thanks for setting me straight on that, but it, the aphids show up toward the end of the life cycle of the broccoli here in Phoenix, and it helps start the decomposing process, I would guess. Yeah, well, maybe, and okay. that may be, they may be showing up at that time simply because of the species of aphid that they are and their life cycle, mm -hmm. and that in conjunction with your weather patterns. Certainly here in Pennsylvania, we have aphids season long on our brassicas, oh, so right. all season long. So it's probably more due to the species of aphid and the weather patterns and the climate than it is the fact that they're, you know, in any way breaking down or life. decomposing. Got yeah. it. All right, yeah. cool. Yeah. So let's talk about beneficial bugs, because you said earlier that 1% of the bugs are not beneficial. Well, you said that they're damaging and 99% aren't damaging. Of that 99%, how many are beneficial bugs? Well, I mean, technically they're all beneficial, right? Because they all evolved yeah. to play a role in, mm -hmm. in our gardens. So they all have a duty to perform out there. Now, whether or not that duty is something we humans like, 
Oh, that's a different right? story, yeah, right? Exactly. So they're all beneficial for the role that they are supposed to play in the ecosystem. When we talk about them being beneficial to us, we're typically talking about one of two groups of insects. And the first would be the pollinators. Mm-hmm. That would be, you know, bees, butterflies, wasps, beetles, um, any insect that acts to move pollen from one flower to another, right? Uh-huh, so the right. pollinators. And then we also have uh, the group of beneficials that are either predators or parasites or parasitoidal is technically what the term is. So Mm -hmm. these are the good bugs that help us control the bad bugs. So these are the ones that either feed on or lay their eggs in insects that we consider to be pests in our garden. So this might be a ladybug eating an aphid. It might be a lacewing eating a mealybug. It might be a parasitic wasp laying its egg in the back of that big old tobacco hornworm that you have on your tomato plant, right? So so that group of beneficial insects is really huge, really diverse, and and absolutely fascinating. And so they there's thousands of species of them, and they have a really cool role to play in our garden. Cool. So got a question here from Huey. Mushrooms are popping up in my garden bed. I mentioned them earlier. Is this a good thing? I suppose it depends. I would say it's a benign thing. You know, it could be a good thing if it's an edible mushroom. It could be a really bad thing if it's a poisonous mushroom and your kid takes a sample of it, right? But for the most part, it's a benign thing. I mean, their role for the most part is as a decomposer. You know, their Ah. their fungal hyphae or their quote unquote roots, which is the structure of them below ground that helps break down organic matter within the soil and helps to decompose. Some, obviously some species of fungus are extremely beneficial because they form symbiotic relationships with the roots of our plants and they allow those plants to access nutrients or to exchange nutrients with other plants. I mean, you guys might've seen on Facebook, there's been a little meme and a little video going around about how trees talk to one another. Oh, right. And they can do that through their fungal network and the fungal associations underground, the mycorrhizal fungi that form these networks underground. It's basically this giant communication system and transport system that's underground. So Mm -hmm. they can be extremely beneficial to our plants. I, in my own garden, I never worry when I see mushrooms, whether they're in my garden beds, in my lawn, on my trees, in the compost pile, wherever. I think they're absolutely fascinating. I don't eat them or anything like that, never, just because I wouldn't be confident in my right. own identification skills. Yeah. But I certainly appreciate them for the valuable role that they play. Yeah, exactly. And so what I just heard you say is they're decomposers. They are. In, not in every case. Right. Not in every case. There are species, you know, usually the ones where we see, we call the fruiting body, which is the actual mushroom itself, mm-hmm. you know, springing up out of the ground. Many of those are decomposers, but the that's only the small part that you see is only right. a tiny bit of that mushroom. The rest of the mushroom is this thread-like network under the ground of their fungal, of their hyphae under the ground. So those ones are definitely, you know, most of those are decomposers. But then again, you know, like I said, there's the mycorrhizal fungi, which are not decomposers. Instead, they're sort of this network of transportation and in association with Mm. the tree roots. So they do have other roles to play as well. Got it. Cool. So Jackie wants to know chopping and dropping greenery and leaves into my garden beds. I worry about it robbing nitrogen from the plants. Is this still a good idea? 
So that's a, that's a really good and a very interesting question, mm-hmm. right? So usually when it's you chop and drop and you let it on the soil surface like that, if you are doing green plants, so plants that were like your broccoli plant when you cut it down or your lettuce plants or your tomato plant, you cut it down, it's actually pretty rich in nitrogen. Mm-hmm. And so as it breaks down, it will return that nitrogen to the soil. But when you are putting brown material like wood chips or straw on the soil surface, that's a very carbon rich ingredient. Mm -hmm. And during that decomposition process, it can take a little bit of nitrogen out of the soil to balance out that rich carbon. And you might in the very, very top layer of soil have a little bit of nitrogen depletion with that, but it's very minimal. And if you're only leaving it on the surface of the ground, it's really nothing that you have to worry about. It's more critical if you're turning those wood chips Mm -hmm. into the soil where you're the, the, the zone where they're found in is much deeper. Then you have a bigger issue with more extensive, you know, nitrogen, quote unquote, robbing from the soil. But if you're just chopping and dropping, leaving it on the soil surface and it's mostly green matter, you don't have to worry about that. Excellent. Laura wants to know, she she really wants to entice pollinators and butterflies to her garden for viewing pleasure and garden benefit. She says, I'm zone four, five, almost 5,000, 8,000 feet above sea level with massive tall pines. What recommendations do you have for anybody that wants to attract pollinators? Yeah. So um, it's important, obviously, to try to go with native plants to your region, mm-hmm. if at all possible, because they co-evolved with those species of pollinators that are native to your region. And so you want to make sure that you're providing them with the right kind of nectar. And obviously, you know, we want to use native plants whenever possible, just because it's, it's good for many other reasons as well. So right. that's not to say that non-native plants don't provide nectar for pollinators, because they certainly do. What I think a lot of scientists are looking at now is the fitness of that nectar. And is the nectar from a native plant more fit? for our native pollinators, right? And so I think the jury is still out on whether or not that's the case. But my thing is, you certainly won't, it would never hurt to go with a native plant. So if you're putting in a new garden and you're making choices, why wouldn't you choose native plants, Mm -hmm. right? Because there's so many gorgeous and amazing ones. I'm not a native purist, so I have lots of plants in my garden. I would say the bulk of them are native, but I grow peonies. I grow German bearded iris. You know, I have plants that I love that I I couldn't imagine gardening without just because they're not native. But at the same point, you know, somebody who wants to use all native and opt for that, that's fantastic. And I love that, you know, so it's really about what's right for you. But for pollinators, I would opt to choose as many native plants as possible. Find ones that are suitable for your climate as well. It is a challenge, more of a challenge in the shade obviously, than it is in full sun. But thankfully, there's a lot of resources. And one of my favorite ones is, there's two different ones. One is the Xerces Society, X-E-R-C-E-S, Xerces, which is the Society for Invertebrate Conservation. So it bugs, right? It's all about, uh, it's a a great nonprofit association. They have native plant lists for every region of North America on their website. Wow. You can go to Xerces, I think it's just xerces.org, X-E-R-C-E-S, org and uh, and look for their native plant list there and you'll find ones they have them separated by like dry shade shade sun you know full sun partial sun blah 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 and then by you know mid-atlantic you know pacific coast whatever so you can look by the region that's one also the national wildlife federation they have a native plant finder on their website as well where you can go in and i believe that when you even enter your zip code and it spits oh. out lists 
of native plants for your climate. So tons of resources out there that can help you find the best choices for where you live. Now, I know Brad Lancaster, he's a water harvesting guy down in Tucson, written books on water harvesting and natives. And they have found by using desert natives, it brings in more of the native pollinators, the native bugs, the native birds. Uh, so yeah, I'm uh, all the way with you on natives. And it's a diversity thing too. You yeah. know, you never want to have all of any one plant. So you don't want just like an overwhelming right. amount of coneflower or an overwhelming amount of perennial sunflower. You want to have as many species, different flower forms, different shapes, different bloom times, different what we call floral architecture, mm -hmm. which is the shape of the flower itself. Is it a daisy shape? Is it a spike shape? You know, is it an umble, which is like an umbrella shape? Right. Because all of those different flower structures support and provide nectar for different kinds of insects because they all have a different mouth, right? The morphology yep. of the butterfly is different than the mouth morphology of a bee, of a tiny bee or a bumblebee, right? So the diversity of flowers leads to a diversity of pollinators. Amen to that. So let's talk about bees for a minute, because mostly we think that there are one or two or three different kinds of bees. There's the big black bumblebee, there's honeybees, and what other kind of bees are there? So why should we encourage native bees, and how do we do that? Because there's, what, hundreds or maybe even thousands of different kinds of native bees, right? Yep, there's about 4,000 species of native wow. bees in North America. So huge diversity. Only 4,000, right? Only right. 4,000. And our biggest one would be if you know what a carpenter bee looks like. Mm -hmm. That's one of our biggest native bees, and they're nice. They're big, fat, sassy bees, and they're really cool. All the way down to the teeniest, tiniest little sweat bees and our little, there's actually a little carpenter bee that's very, very tiny. I mean, some of them are not much bigger than a gnat, right? And wow. so, you know, we have this crazy diversity of bees. Very few of them are yellow and black striped sort of, you know, the cartoon bee right. shape. They come in all kinds of different colors and shapes and patterns. And it's really amazing when you take a dive into the native bees and learn. If you can't learn about 4,000 different species, then maybe learn a couple different families. You know, how can you recognize a bumblebee? How can you recognize our native sweat bees? How can you recognize our mining bees or our leaf cutter bees and get to know them? because they're very, very charismatic insects. Most of mm -hmm. them do not sting. They're very docile. Most of them are solitary, so they don't live in a big old hive like a European honeybee does, where there's thousands of them. Instead, they live you know, in a single solitary brood chamber, You know, the female all by herself in a hole in the ground or a little tiny hole in a log. You know, the, the, I think 70% of our native bees are ground nesting where it's a solitary nester, one single insect in in a little brood wow. chamber and then like the bumblebees bumblebees are usually like 30 to 60 individuals in a colony and it's like this little blob and the way she, the, the queen bumblebee starts building that blob of a nest in an old rodent burrow or in a little hole in the ground and wow. and she makes these little balls and all of the balls stick together into this clump it's really cool. You should Google it. Google bumblebee nest and you'll come across this. They're so cool looking. And each one of those little balls, she lays an egg. She puts a wad of pollen and lays an egg in there. And that's where the, the larval bees. And then as that starts in the spring and it grows larger and the colony grows larger and you know, then, then at the very end of the season, the new queens are formed. So the only ones that overwinter are the fertilized queens. Oh, and wow. then in the 
spring, they emerge. Start again. They go on to start again. So if you've got blueberries growing here in the east at any rate, where we get freezing winter temperatures, the blueberries are one of their favorite foods in the spring. And if you see bumblebees on your blueberry plants pollinating, there's like a 99% chance that that's a female fertilized queen bumblebee because they bloom so early in the season. Mm -hmm. And she's just getting started building her building her little nest. Wow. Awesome. Here's a bee question from Jewel. How do I discourage the big black carpenter bee from tunneling through my 40-year-old mulberry tree? Oh, don't. Don't. I thought you were going to say your fence. So I was going to offer you a way to deter them from your fence or your house with cedar siding. So uh -huh. that's that's worth discouraging them, right? Because it's it's your home. Right. It's an investment. And the, the problem is not necessarily the carpenter bees, but it's the woodpeckers that go after the carpenter bee larvae larva, uh. and they peck up your siding on your house and they really can destroy it. But in your 40-year-old mulberry tree, that's where they belong. And that's where they should be setting up shop, those carpenter bees. And really the carpenter bee will chew a hole and make a little tunnel. And then she lays her eggs in a brood chamber mm -hmm. inside of that tunnel. And so that's, that's exactly the environment where she's supposed to be setting up shop. Well, and they don't eat live wood, do they? Correct. No, they don't. They don't. They tunnel, they'll find a soft spot. So chances are that there was probably already some kind of rot inside of that mulberry tree. You know, that, that's why she chose it as a good place to, you know, easily Got chew it. through and get the, yeah. get her eggs laid in there. Yep. So, so to a certain extent, the bumblebee could be a decomposer because they're starting to break down dead wood. Oh, the carpenter bee? Technically a pollinator, but I suppose in a way that could be considered. <laughs> you're really wanting, you're really rooting for the decomposer. I am, right? absolutely. <laughs> well, absolutely. how about slugs? They're, they're a classic decomposer, those slugs. The Everybody slugs? loves slugs, oh, yeah. right? Right. Well, people love them or love to hate them, one of the two. <laughs> they love to hate them, right? But yeah. when I said love, I meant love, you know, not real <laughs> yeah. love, of course. Right. Exactly. So... 433923M wants to know, if you add weeds and grass clippings to compost, will it result in weeds in your garden? If the weeds have gone to seed, absolutely it will. So you want to make sure that you keep all weeds that have gone to seed out of the compost pile. And also if it is a weed that has, you know, little underground roots that easily take root, mm. so something like Canada thistle or bindweed where those little root pieces will form a whole new plant, keep those out of the compost pile as well. So compost really needs to heat up to about 135 degrees for a sustained period of about two weeks in order for it to be able to kill most weed seeds and little pieces of root like that. If very few home compost piles that are turned. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you have to turn them regularly. You really have to monitor the balance of your nitrogen and carbon-based ingredients to really make sure that the pile gets up to that high of a temperature. A little yeah. different with a commercial pile where it's much bigger, right? And they're turning it on a regular basis. Yeah. Then that stuff is killed, but home compost piles, not so much. Yeah, I, I give a class called non-composting because thermophilic or hot composting is really quite hard to do. And if all you have is kitchen scraps... Get yourself a worm bin. Worms right. will eat all your kitchen scraps and make amazing worm poop. We call it worm castings. And that's, you know, that's great for your soil. Yeah, it is. And actually, if you if you want to, people want to learn more about 
proper composting, where mm -hmm. you're really paying attention to the carbon and nitrogen balance and why that's so important. We actually have an article up on Savvy Gardening. It's, if you go to SavvyGardening.com and you, there's a little search box on the top and you type in compost how-to guide, mm -hmm. you'll come up with the article. It's like a science-based guide to composting that explains all of that process and, and explains what you have to do in order to really get good quality, proper compost to nice. come out of the bin. Nice. Yeah. I'm going there. There you go. Because I'd, like <laughs> I'd like to read that. 433923M wants to know, how do you use worm castings? How do you not use worm castings? <laughs> They're good for everything. In the wintertime, you can use them to top a house plant, you know, mm, work them into the top a little, right? little bit of compost, worm castings on top of your uh, potting soil. I love them to help fill my containers out in the garden. So when I'm filling up with my potting soil and blend in, in my containers, I'll add a couple of shovels full there. If you're planting your tomatoes, you can add a few shovels full into the, the, the hole where you're planting that tomato. Yeah. So pretty much any time you're planting something, you can work a little bit of those worm castings into the soil. Absolutely. There's, there's microorganisms in the worm castings. There's probably worm eggs in the worm castings that can, you know, that help your garden. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's crazy too. There's like um, all kinds of cool amino acids and exudates that help soil bind together. So they change the way that the soil can aggregate and they change the soil structure to really make it more friable and easy to work. And so that's all found in those worm castings. So when we work them into the soil, we're also seeing those benefits too. Yeah. All right. You just used a word and I'd like you to define it for us. Friable. That's what Friable. I do. That, that's what I do with French toast in the morning. What what do you? How do you use the word? <laughs> Not F R Y A B L E. F R I A B L E. Friable, loose, crumbly, easy to work. Ah, very good. So when you you know watch Martha Stewart and she goes out in her garden and she digs and it's all this crumbly, dark, rich soil. You know, because someone's been adding a ton of organic matter in yep. there over the years. It's real easy to work. That's friable soil. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Garden Chat tonight, Jessica. It's been fun. Thank you for letting me talk so passionately about bugs, too. A lot of people oh, don't yeah. like to listen to that. Oh, my gosh. you kidding? <laughs> Bring it on. So you have you guys have a newsletter, the Savvy Gardening Newsletter. How, do I how does somebody sign up for it? Yeah, we do. So you can just go to SavvyGardening.com. We've got a box. We don't do pop-ups. But we have a box on the side of the main, uh, and, and in fact, every on every page on the website, and it's a little sign up for the Savvy Gardening newsletter. You just click on that. We don't use it for anything else other than our newsletter. We don't sell any. We don't spam anything. All you do is every two weeks, you get the newsletter. Nice. All right. And Janice is giving me a new me another message. And once again, Jessica, thank you so much for everything you do and for showing up tonight. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. 
They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.